The powerhouse acknowledges the traditional custodians of the ancestral homelands on which its museums are situated. We pay our respects to elders past and present and recognise their continuous connection to country. The sovereignty of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations was never ceded. We acknowledge the people who fought, sacrificed and resisted the invasion, dispossession and colonising tactics employed by the Crown and the ongoing resistance of First Nations people here today. This episode was recorded and produced on unceded Woiwurrung country, Kaurna country, Yagara country and Turbul country. You're listening to Oscillations, a series of stories about things that pulse and fluctuate, from heartbeats to brainwaves and economic cycles to cosmic orbits. Drawing from the Powerhouse Museum's collection, we've invited seven artists, journalists, poets and curious people to interpret this material culture and tell their stories. Our first episode stems from a small brass Aborigines VR uniform button. Object number 88-394-1. Produced in the mid-19th century and worn by one of several native police forces around at the time. In this story, Dakota Fira begins to untangle the oscillations of survival in colonial Australia, alongside his own familial link to the New South Wales police force. What can this object tell us about the relationships underpinning our society today, as well as attempts to obscure them from history? Featuring the voices of historical archaeologist Heather Burke and Frontier War Stories producer Bo Spearham, here's The Moral Frontier by Dakota Fira. For our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, this audio work contains the names and voices of people who are now deceased. Content warning. The following reflects on culturally sensitive and confronting themes, figures and events associated with colonial violence and the frontier wars. In particular, the following recalls the nature, events and activities of the Native Police, also known as the Native Mounted Police, a control mechanism deployed by state colonies to nullify Indigenous resistance, enact the forced dispersal of Indigenous peoples and enable the seizure of sovereign territories on behalf of the British Crown. The nature of the means employed by the Crown and enacted by the state through the Native Police were genocidal and confronting today. The actions performed under this regime breached the very human rights we herald as fundamental to our modern civil society. Yet, the legacy of this past informs social, political and cultural relationships that are upheld and integral to our current day. This is just one perspective of the native police. Summary. Object number 88 of 394-1. Materials. Brass. Dimensions. Nine millimeters. Production. Made in Britain, United Kingdom, 
Europe, used in Australia, Oceania, 1842 to 1856. Physical description, insignia of unit on obverse stamp, Aborigines VR, within garter and surmounted by a crown belonging to Queen Victoria. Location of regiment on reverse, stamped in concentric circle around edge of button. New Holland. Maker. Unknown. Owner. Unknown. Notes. Unknown. Owner occupation. Member of the Aboriginal Native Police or Native Mounted Police. Circa 1840 to the turn of the last century. Regiment unknown. Historical context, the fires of the frontier. The Native Police are probably the least understood element of frontier conflict in Australia because they were, like we're talking about human beings, we're talking about people who did things that we now cannot understand and can't fathom how that system could, I can't anyway, how that system could exist for so long in the form that it did. But its consequences were profound and long-lasting and affected, I would say, every Aboriginal community across Queensland. So from the smallest symbol of a uniform, what you have is a statewide system of colonial destruction. The repercussions of that don't go away, right? It's not like just because it happened in the 19th century, it doesn't matter anymore. History informs us of the relationships that we have today. Language might change, the policies might not be around, but, you know, the intent is still there. This badge represents uh, so much heartache, brutality, and if you want to sort of quote Henry Reynolds, it's one of the most brutal organisations in the history of this continent. In Queensland, there's been a very, very brutal relationship with the Native Mounted Police. Public awareness. Unknown. Significance is as follows, and it echoes in the memories of those descended from brass, chains, and bullets. It's a tiny object, right? It's the smallest, littlest object, but it's the biggest story. So to unpack that from from the small material thing you're holding in your hand or looking at on the screen, to the story of the human beings who were part of that system, how they became part of that system, why why they did the things they did, how they felt about those things, the impacts that had on all the other people, all the other communities. This is what the colony does. For the most part, the Aboriginal people involved were coerced and co-opted into sort of supporting and participating in this. Aboriginal people never ranked high in these organisations. Uh, they always had a white overseer. Some ran away, didn't come back. Some ran away, got caught, had to come back. 
if our history were born of but one soldier, this badge be what was worn. Without a name, needless a wage, without acknowledgement, stood beyond bronze memorials, beyond a single story. Their nameless bodies borne the weights of crowns as the shadows shaped history. Their titles are written forgotten, while royals remain hidden, woven deep into fabric of flags, written in names of states that were claimed, Victoria, Wales and Queensland. We always wanted to understand these men as human beings. So not as this sort of symbolic thing in any way, but real human beings faced with things that we can't imagine, but that were their everyday reality. So who were they and where did they come from? There were certainly, as you say, I think lots of very young boys. Their traditional life ways had been destroyed and perhaps their families as well. And there's certainly accounts of the NMP kidnapping children all the time or taking children as guides or taking children as interpreters. Not a lot of these people, but some of these would have been, you know, survivors of massacres, you know. Uh, and, and one of the ways that they would have did this as well is they would have got Aboriginal people from other areas. You know, there's stories of uh, Native Mounted Police in Tasmania from New South Wales. For some, it's a, it's a survival tactic. I don't know, yeah, what drives somebody to sort of becoming that and, and being a part of that institution. I guess the closer you can get yourself to the colony the further you get away from the retribution and, and the abuse and the brutality of the colony, but within saying that, but because of the colour of their skin and what they look like, you know, they're always going to be surrounded by that sort of violence, whether it's psychological, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, whether it's whatever. And I don't think it was just the lure of a uniform and a gun, you know, but it might have been the lure of of something that gave you some kind of authority back, you know, like if everything had been destroyed and you didn't know your place in the world and the way you were treated by white settlers showed you a particular pathway that was negative and destructive or whatever, I think maybe this gave them some sense of family or camaraderie or just a purpose that made them feel worthwhile. And that's the hardest thing to understand. Like what, there's one thing to say, why did they join? But it's another thing to say, what was it like to be a trooper, given the things that they did? What were the long-term effects of that as well? Like, how would that affect you as a person? Some men are prone to misadventure Questions of guilt aren't always clear Who were these men who rode at night? Whom shed tears and led on promised soil. Whom from quills heard promises, carried out imperial wills on horseback. Their duty unto the crown, served but purpose for the loss, a sedative for the pain that cannot be undone. Some men run from a fate they can't avoid. All men choose the path they walk. You know, as Indigenous peoples, we exist in every facet of the colony, on both sides. 
So if we're the prisoner, we're the prison guard. If we're the, the young person that's in, you know, a youth prison, we're the youth worker as well. You know, if we're the school teacher, we're the student, you know what I mean? Like we have to play our roles within them to survive. As bad as it was, there was nothing that could change that organisation within that period of time. You know, so if all these blackfellas took off and cruise, like they just would have got another bunch of blackfellas. You know, so it's this organisational sort of system thing that carries out the work of the colony. I do think a lot of documents were destroyed. It was easy for that history to become invisible. And I think the job that they did was so essential to white settlement. So white settlers needed them to be able to, you know, assert those territories. As soon as they'd done the job for them, they wanted them to leave and disappear so that they could not think about that aspect of their presence there. So I think they were deliberately forgotten by the the people who used them, but also deliberately erased from history. So I think it was a deliberate process of forgetting them because they were so essential to the colonisation of Queensland. They were a tool that was used and then the point politically was to erase them from that history so that it became a different story about, you know, white settlement. And that's why we have the the sorts of, you know, white hero men that we do who are usually put on plaques and statues and the histories of Queensland that tell stories about its wonderful pastoral industry and its mining wealth and whatever, whatever the stories are that that you know about progress and civilization and all those sorts of ideals. That's what, that's what the colony does. You know, it eats you up and chews you out and spits you out. There is no appreciation in the colony, especially when we work for it. At their benefit, but it's always at our detriment. Um, I guess that's just the dirty work and nobody wants to know about that. So maybe that's why we don't necessarily know about the Native Mounted Police, just because we're so brutal. You know, they want us to think that they got this continent very peacefully, but it wasn't the case. And they also don't want us to realise that our mob just didn't survive because of, you know, they wanted us to survive. We survived because we survived. We survived because of our warriors and what we did, and uh, we survived because of, you know, the knowledge of country and everything else as well. So that's why we don't know too much about this time, which was so brutal. Um, and as they say, history, when, uh, you know, the, the victors tell their side of, of the story. So that's why we're only finding out about this. You know, and I think if we knew more about it, there'll be a, a consciousness shift in terms of um, how people think and maybe how people feel towards Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as well. Invisible may be their essence. In memorial is their absence. Though their legacy will forever be tied to our present. Felt heavily amongst the living ruins of the survived. What's left? Broken hearts snapping glass. Stolen wages paid in bullets and brass. Bloodstained soil and broken promises. The unborn child's blessed inheritance. Stolen country for them. Trauma for the other. Amidst chaos we listen. 
remember. The moral frontier across the landscape of duress. This duress country. These were the native police. This is our history. So my name's Heather Burke and I'm an archaeologist. I work at Flinders University in Adelaide, so I'm on Ghana country most of the time, but a lot of my research takes me to Queensland, so I work right across from Western Queensland to Cape York Peninsula, so working on a lot of different people's lands. The thing about the Native Police, the reason we started that project was because whenever we worked with Indigenous communities, massacre stories would always come up, right? People would want to talk about um, those places, not necessarily the details of the events, but that was the past that people wanted to talk about and for us to be aware of and for us to know it was important to them. Ayama Bosferum, Gumuroi Kuma Marawari, uh, born in Western Sydney, uh, in a place called Blacktown, and I live uh, on Yagara country. Born in Darug country, uh, but from Gamilaray, Kuma and Marawari country. My involvement uh, yarning with you is through my podcast, Frontier War Stories, which looks at the first 140 years of conflict and resistance between Aboriginal people and white followers. Um, so that's looking at the massacres, uh, look at the resistance, the resistance leaders, the tactics, um, and look at the relationships uh, and how they were formed and built and my name is Dakota Fira. I'm a Banjalang and Gumbengar man, currently living on Turbrook country. My family are connected to the northern rivers of New South Wales, one of the battlegrounds where the native police once operated. My great-grandfather was William Leslie Robinson, an enlisted black tracker for the New South Wales Police Force. And like every Australian, I too inherit a history of complexity and compromise. And I am eternally grateful for the strength, survival and resilience of my ancestors and all of our old people who defended, sacrificed and negotiated during the frontier. Our walk continues. Some men hide from the Dakota Fira with The Moral Frontier. Dakota is a Bunjalung and Gumbainga educator, researcher and interdisciplinary storyteller. His work consists of poems, installations and reflections that engage with country, culture, history and healing. 
Thanks to Bo Spearham of Frontier War Stories, Heather Burke from Flinders University, and Nathan Mudgee Sentence and Tammy Gazelle from the First Nations Collections team here at the Powerhouse. The Oscillations team includes me, John Shear, Aisha Ash, Callum Cooper, Marish Furtfeger, and Cara Stewart. The commissioning editor is Lisa Haviler. Erin Hyde composed our theme music using recordings of objects from the Powerhouse collection. A special thanks to Emily McDaniel. Coming up next... When a satellite reaches the end of its lifespan, it either gets sent up into what is known as the graveyard orbit or down, burning up in the Earth's atmosphere or sinking within the spacecraft cemetery in the nether regions of the Pacific Ocean. Alexandra Spence takes us beyond Earth's atmosphere and into a world of space junk with Stella Nullius. Subscribe to our channels and we'll catch you then. <laughs>